Welcome to a special crossover episode of the Sacred and Profane Love podcast and of Manifesto, a podcast, your regular visit to the archives of vanity where men and women who stop making myths turn to issuing proclamations and commands. Jake Siegel is out today, so your guides for this journey are Jennifer Frey, who teaches philosophy at the University of South Carolina, and me, Phil Cly, the divine literatus. May you continue to be a person. Okay, so this is a crossover episode with the excellent Jennifer Frey, philosopher, podcaster, and blogger at The Virtue Blog. I discovered Sacred and Profane Love podcast, her podcast, a couple months ago when I heard a friend of mine, Scott Morangello, on it discussing Marilyn Robinson's Gilead, and from then on, I was hooked. If you like Manifesto, you definitely should check it out. It's got philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discussing O'Connor, Dostoevsky, Whitman, and so on. And so, let's get to it. Hey everyone, welcome back to episode 21 of Sacred and Profane Love. So I'm really pleased to be joined by Phil Cly this evening. Phil is a graduate of Dartmouth College and a veteran of the U.S. Marine Corps. He served in Iraq's Anbar province from January 2007 to February 2008 as a public affairs officer. After being discharged, he received an MFA from Hunter College of the City University of New York. He has a best-selling short story collection titled Redeployment which won the National Book Award for Fiction in 2014. His writings have appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, Newsweek, and the Brookings Institution's Brookings Essay Series. Welcome to the podcast, Phil. It is wonderful to be on. So I Twitter know you. The nice things about Twitter is that it does introduce you to, uh, to cool people sometimes. Well, why don't you tell my listeners about your podcast? Sure. Um, uh, I do it with a, an old buddy of mine, Jacob Siegel, uh, who's an editor at Tablet, a uh, really good journalist and, and writer. He's got a, a few fiction uh, short stories out there, <clears throat> which are worth hunting down as well. And we usually, we pair a manifesto and a work of art um, and talk about them both in tandem. Uh, and so it's, you know, we'll do, it's manifesto loosely Defined. So it'll be everything from sort of Valerie Solanus's Scum Manifesto, the Society for the Cutting Up of Men, which we paired with Cat Person, Christian Repentian short story, Cat Person. That was a good episode. Thank I you. That. Thank you. I'm a fan of your podcast. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, you know, to uh, we did a couple of uh, Schiller's Aesthetic Letters and Ian McEwen. We did um, um, Alistair McIntyre on Patriotism. Uh, with, Ooh, is that a new one? I don't think I've no, heard that's that. an old one. And the, the oh, work okay. of art was we considered the, the, the ceremonial interment of the unknown soldier uh, in 1921 as a work of art in its own right um, and talked about those two in tandem. So it's, it's a sort of it's, a, it's, a, it's an odd project that Jake and I have going that I think is, you know, we did it so that we would have the kind of conversations that we like having um that were sort of fitting with the sorts of things we were writing about that would kind of feed our work and also just en enable us to talk about you know ideas and art that we loved so or, or ideas and art that we hated uh you know we don't we don't like everything that we um we look at but we're that's right that's right i really i liked your um you guys had an episode on the first things manifesto uh, yeah, <laughs> I liked that one. First things has been, um, <clears throat> they're all really mad at me now, itself, but like, yeah, no, it's, I'm, I'm not happy with no. them this week. So you're a podcaster and, uh, but you're also, I mean, you're primarily a writer. 
I mean, is that how you want to primarily describe yourself? I'm primarily a dad at this point. Um, <laughs> yeah. I feel, I feel, uh, I, I don't know if I can claim that because I know that you've got six at home. Uh, so two and one on the way is not that impressive, but, um, <laughs> I don't know. It's the, it's the plague. I feel like parenting <laughs> just in general right now is, is impressive no matter who's just, so when are, when are y'all due? Um, in about a month. So, okay. So you're going to have a plague baby. Plague baby. Yeah. That's, um, that's what we're going to name him. Uh, <laughs> baby just, yes. <laughs> I'm sure he'll be thrilled. You're also in New York City, right? Yep. Um, no, it's it's very serious. Uh, a friend of ours, um, you know, parent died of this. Um, That's terrible. Days ago. Another friend um, is in the uh, is in the hospital on a ventilator. Uh, their parent. Uh, it's um, yeah. No, it's terrible. That's really terrible and terrifying. I'm sorry. Um, I mean, I feel, you know, I'm down here in South Carolina. And so if, I mean, obviously we, we have it here. I think we're now up to like 900 cases or something, but it's nothing like New York City. There are fewer people in my state in general than in New York City. I think there are like, no one lives here, which, which I actually like generally, but I'm especially grateful for now. And don't you, sorry, don't you also have a novel that's like coming out? Oh yeah, just I, should, came out? I should talk about that. No, uh, yeah, talk about your novel. Uh, yeah, it comes out in um, October, you know, assuming the world still exists. And right. um, yeah, um, it's mostly set in Colombia, though it also takes place in Iraq, uh, Afghanistan, Yemen, and America. Um, um, which Colombia? Sorry, I live in Columbia, South Carolina, and I'm certain it doesn't take place there. No, uh, Columbia, <laughs> the country. Yeah. Right, gotcha. <laughs> and it kind of tracks the way that sort of... Um, American wars have cross-pollinated. So if you, so for easy example, every American ambassador to Columbia post 9-11 has ended up involved in Afghanistan or Pakistan in some way. Mm -hmm. um, two American ambassadors, they're posting after being the ambassador to Columbia was ambassador to Afghanistan. Uh, and then sort of military tactics and strategies that we've used or sort of developed in Iraq and Afghanistan have been brought to bear in the conflict in Colombia, and it sort of follows two Americans, two Colombians, um, uh, civilians and soldiers uh, whose sort of fates intersect uh, in this one province. Uh, so, you know, it uh, took me six years to write. Wow. When did you start writing fiction? Oh, I mean, I always... I was always a big reader, which is, I suppose, how the, how the, how the disease starts. And then I found that like the way that I put, could put myself at the most risk, right. And the things that I thought about the world at the most risk, um, whereas the most exposed was by writing fiction. Right. Uh, I remember writing a story. We we're supposed to do a satire in, in, um, my junior year of high school I went to a, a catholic high school called regis um that, right uh, you went to this magical high school i've you, heard about it you know who went there fauci you know what i just i did i did know that i saw that and i was like of course they went there it's like that's right know. yeah it, it was a magical place yeah um, 
And uh, I had written this satire, it was like satire dating or what a modern dating among teenagers. Um, uh, and that was pretty sort of in a veiled way, savagely self-critical and also incredibly profane. And so the teachers all had these, like the teachers uh, had their desks in a big room that the students also sort of congregated in. And so I turned the thing in like a week early because I said, oh, I, I want you to look this over. It's kind of, you know, profane. This is like a, like a short story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a short story. And, you know, when it's you, profane, how, like it has a lot of F-bombs, a lot of sex, like what? All the above. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and I was like, uh, you know, if you could read this, if, if you don't think it's appropriate to turn in, you know, it's due next week, I'll, I'll write a different thing. And then, you know, I go to the back of the room where my friends are hanging out, but the whole time I'm just, you know, sort of freaking out, looking at my teacher as he's reading this thing. And he starts laughing as he's reading it. Um, and then, you know, when he finishes, he calls me over and he's like, this is great. Um, and he gave me a is this like a lay person, a priest? A lay a Catholic person, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, <laughs> it was one of the more satisfying. It was just one of those moments uh, that was tremendously satisfying. Um, Did you study fiction? I, I studied with the poet Tom Slay, actually, uh, and the poet Cynthia Huntington as well, and a couple other Barbara Dimmick. Um, the Tom Slay, I'm still in touch with Tom. Uh, wonderful, wonderful, really interesting poet. Actually, a poet who spent time in, in Iraq and actually in a lot of conflict, uh, conflict zones and written really well about some of the complications in, in telling stories and in war zones. Um, so yeah, that was tremendously important. And then, you know, went into the Marine Corps. So you were a fiction nerd and then yeah. you went into the Marine Corps yeah. because somehow, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm basically ignorant of your life story, but somehow like my assumption was you went to the Marines and then you just, then you got into fiction. But and then no. that made you a, a writer, you know? Uh, yeah, no. right? Like you're no. confronted with, you know, death and the absurd. And <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you went to a super fancy high school in Manhattan and then you went to Dartmouth. So what are you doing joining the Marines? It's not like an <laughs> obvious trajectory. I was raised to believe in service. Uh-huh. Um, and that was something. So you thought it was noble. That's, yeah, and that was something the Jesuits, you know, Regis, a sort of unofficial motto is men for others. I went to, I was a freshman in college in 2001, graduated in 2005. So when I made the decision to join the Marine Corps, we were already in Afghanistan and heading into Iraq. Did you think it was a just cause? Uh, no. Um, in retrospect, at the time I did. No, yeah, at the time. Yeah, at the time I sort of bought the kind of like sort of humanitarian case for Iraq that was being made among sort of center-left um, circles, right? The justice of the war was sort of less the point to me than, you know, we were in it. We're going to, you know, whether I thought it was just or not, we were going there. We were already in Afghanistan. Um, right. And how well that we did in those places would be measured in human lives. So, um, you know, I wanted to serve my country. I wanted to be sort of... Uh, playing a role in this massive thing that my country was doing that was, you know, going to shape us and as, as a country and, and, and as a world. And I wanted to, you know, do my part. Right. Did you start writing the stories that make up redeployment while you were there? 
So I started the first story, actually the first story in the book is the first one that I started writing. Um, and I wrote it uh, a couple months after I came, I started it, but a couple months after I came back from Iraq. And the first sentence in the book, which is We Shot Dogs, is the first sentence that I wrote. What's your favorite contribution to that collection? Like, what's the one you recommend above all that people read? Well, which one is your, which one of your children is your favorite? Um, I'm not going to answer that publicly. <laughs> so, so wait, wait, you've definitely got one. <laughs> I am not going on record with that one. <laughs> the thing is, I conceived of it as a collection. I conceived of it as like, I wanted the stories to be read in order. Um, yeah. The first one was written first, but the last one was the second one, I think, uh, that I started writing. I knew where I was beginning. I knew where I wanted to end. Uh, so they don't, you know, in my mind, they fit together. Well, if I were uh, minimally together, which I'm not right now, I would, of course, have read your stories in preparation for this podcast, but I haven't read them yet. I actually struggled with Lord Jim. Um, which, of course, is what we're going to be talking about yeah. on this episode. One of the things that we're obviously going to talk about is its narrative structure. It's mm -hmm. complicated. It's complicated, not always successful narrative structure. I think it's fair to say that there's a part in the in sort of late middle <laughs> where <laughs> you can tell there's, in the author's note, he actually starts defending himself against charges that the novel had gotten away from him. Yeah. Um, yeah. It. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. This it, is one of my favorite books. This is okay, one of my excellent. favorite books. But there are flaws. <laughs> there That's is, right. Yeah. 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 It's not. I mean, the thing is, well, the the Joseph Conrad that um, most of us have read is Heart of Darkness, mm -hmm. and it's so tight, and there's like not a wasted breath, and mm -hmm. it's almost like poetry. Um, so this, this is a really different vibe, but I think for me, I've just been so distracted and I just, I was like struggling to even follow the plot. Cause it's right. like, it jumps around in time. And then you're like, oh wait, it's not even the same. Like who's narrating this thing? <laughs> What's going on? Um, but let's, let's just step back for a second. And so now I just want to ask you, why did you pick a Conrad novel? And why of all the Conrad novels did you pick Lord Jim to talk about with me? I, I love Conrad. I do too. Why is he so great? Let's try to put that into words. You think about somebody like George Eliot, right? Mm -hmm. Who will describe a character in their social setting and their milieu with such intelligence and sensitivity and just utter perfection. You have these characters who just feel um, like you know everything about them. You understand them and you understand the world. And that kind of style of narration moves in kind of like the, the naturalist as you're moving up towards Conrad in time with a, a bunch of writers, uh, you know, I'm thinking like McTeague uh, from Frank Norris or Stephen Crane for whom like you got like 19th century positivism and this ideas of, of sort of science is being able to pin down everything, including the human. So they're looking at, at, at um, society 
and they'll describe human beings in these ways that are sort of really rich and interesting, but also sometimes you feel like the human beings in their works are um, sort of like, you know, pinned like butterflies to a board, right, and dissected. And when you read Conrad, he has all of that sort of rich understanding of the ways that the sort of sociological conditions inform people and the extent to which we are really, really dependent upon culture and society and those around us and the groups that we're with and the settings that we're in. Um, and yet the characters are free. <laughs> they're human beings. There are, there, there are gaps. There are things that he's always pushing you towards, um, where that sort of like, sort of confident, sort of positivist inflected sort of ability to pin somebody down with utter perfection, um, where he'll just prick it and they'll pop like a, like a bubble. Actually, there's a, there's a good, um, there's a good example of this early on, and maybe this will give you sort of an idea of what I'm, what I'm talking about, but there's a, so the, the first part of the, of the novel is about this guy, Jim, um, who, I suppose we should say spoilers, um, but he's on this ship called the Patna. And because of a sort of a absurd sequence of events, he does something shameful, right? Though it's very clear that almost anybody, and he'd always imagined himself as the kind of person who would do something heroic um, and was sort of had these fantasies of, of, you know, when the moment came, he would show his stuff. Well, yeah, he's out on the scene to, like, have great adventures and be a exactly. hero. Yeah. He's a romantic. Um, and then when the time comes, he fails. But the reason that he fails is because sort of fate has conspired so cruelly and so bizarrely that almost anybody would have. And mm -hmm. he is then, there's a sort of trial uh, of mm -hmm. sorts uh, with other seamen who have to uphold the sort of code of the seamen because... Uh, the crew of the Patna, which it seemed like it, is, it, it, it had been about to sink, had all fled, leaving their passengers on board, including Jim. Um, though, you know, his circumstances were somewhat different, different from the others. And one of the people running this tri uh, trial is this guy, Briarly, who is interrogating Jim. And, you know, it's his job to represent the code of the seaman that Jim has violated and punish him essentially. And Marlowe, the narrator, is describing Briarly. I haven't the slightest doubt he considered himself vastly my superior. He did not despise me for anything I could help, for anything I was, don't you know? I was a ne negligible quantity simply because I was not the fortunate man of the earth, not Montague Briarly in command of the Osa, not the owner of an inscribed gold chronometer and of silver-mounted binoculars testifying to the excellence of my seamanship and my indomitable pluck, not possessed of an acute sense of my merits and my rewards, besides the love and worship of a black retriever, the most wonderful of its kind. For never was such a man thus loved by a dog. And we'll skip a little bit, a little bit ahead. He talks about like even despite the fact that this guy didn't think Marlowe was up to snuff, he liked him. I've never defined to myself this attraction, attraction to Briarly, but there were moments when I envied him. 
the sting of life could do mo no more to his complacent soul than the scratch of a pin to the smooth face of a rock. This was enviable. As I looked at him, flanking on one side the unassuming pale-faced magistrate who presided at the inquiry, his self-satisfaction presented to me and to the world a surface as hard as granite. He committed suicide very soon after. You read something like that and you're, you know, you're in the world of this different style of narration where a character is just being totally described and, and, and kind of hemmed in by everything about them so that you feel like you have this perfect understanding. And then with no warning, with this utter swerve, he destroys it. And then you sort of come to realize that what, what had happened with Briarly was encountering Jim. This is a guy who had had every success, who believed himself sort of worthy of every honor that he'd received, um, has encountered a case in which it becomes clear to him that he doesn't, I think this is sort of mystery to it, but you sort of assume that Briarly realizes I've never been tested like this, right? Um, and it destroys him. And I destroys think it, Briarly. It just, yeah, destroys Briarly. Um, and so I think that's one of the things that I really like about Conrad. I, I, I like the way that he uses narrative, right? There's a, a just an incredible, I mean, the, the way that he narrates, especially the first sort of third of the book when he's going through the Padna story, where he's going from these different narrators and you're getting these different points of view. And with the different points of view, you're getting sort of different kind of ideologically informed systems for understanding this one event, right? That it takes you about a hundred pages to get revealed exactly what happened. As he's sort of moving forward in the narrative, he's kind of excavating all the attempts that human beings make at hemming the world in and making it more intelligible and less mysterious. And then they sort of always, there's always a gap. It always fails. Uh, right. That's what I love about Connor. Right. Well, yeah. So I'm, I'm coming at sort of literature generally from a slightly different perspective, probably less formal in the mm -hmm. sense that like I'm a philosopher. And so part of what, I mean, Part of my interest in literature is what I think it can show us um, that philosophy cannot. Mm -hmm. So it's like, um, so I, I'm super committed to the idea that literature is like a truth-seeking enterprise. I once, with a bunch of students, had lunch with Grace Paley. Uh -huh. And when she talked about revisions, she said, I don't revise to make a story better. I revise to make it more true. Right. Yeah. So I, I'm really invested in that conception of literature, which I'm aware is controversial, but it's just one that I endorse. Me too. And um, I feel like there's a venerable tradition behind me there. I fell in love with Conrad in high school. <laughs> of course, in high school, I was reading Heart of Darkness, which sort of blew my mind. I just don't think I had ever read anything that dark before. And I loved it. I, I totally loved it. One thing to say about Conrad is English is his third language. Yeah. Um, and so I stand in awe at his command of it. He has like a really deep insight into human nature and the human condition. And in all of his novels or novellas, he's like trying to get at some 
some aspect of it, you know, is sort of salient. And it strikes me in my limited capacity as reader of, of Lord Jim this time around, one of the main things that he's on about in this novel is one, you know, that, that human beings want to know what's, what's true. Like they, they, they want to get an account um, for themselves, for others. They want to have like a story about themselves and how hard and complicated it, it is actually to know what really happened. I think he would say that wanting to know what's true and having a story about it are two different things, right? I mean, un unless we have an agenda, unless we're trying to falsify things for, for some reason, right? We're, we're trying to give a, f a faithful account, but I think, and even when we try to tell the story of our own lives and in some sense, you know, we're trying to give a, a faithful account, but like, it's a really fraught enterprise, it turns out. Self-knowledge is really hard, but I think one of the yeah. things about Lord- I was bound to him in the name of that doubt, which is the inseparable part of our knowledge. Yeah, I mean, I think self-knowledge is, is part of the issue here. I have this little quote here. No man ever understands quite his own artful dodges to escape from the grim shadow of self-knowledge. Yeah, like, that's it's one great. of the best lines in the whole book. Even further than that, in Lord Jim, there's, there's a real difficulty about saying, like, who Jim is, even from an external perspective. The way that it's told in the novel is in these, like... <laughs> It starts out in like a, in a third person perspective where you you get that kind of tra traditional depiction of Jim and who he had been beforehand and then um, and then it switches to Marlowe as a narrator uh, and it's the first novel I believe that he was writing in Marlowe's voice uh, starts telling the story and getting accounts from other people and then having encounters with Jim and there's this Patna incident, which is sort of the talk of, of uh, the town, but which it takes, you know, about a hundred pages to fully reveal what exactly happened. And basically Jim, who was this kind of romantic guy who joined, uh, you know, gone off into the seas in order to have adventure, who'd always believed himself to be a you know, courageous sort. And was also, and Cumber makes this very clear, he was the kind of guy who just by looking at him, you knew this was the kind of guy you could trust, you know? Like just by looking at him, he just was one of those solid dudes who you sort of felt like in a moment of crisis, I could count on him, right? Well, there's this common line, right? He's one of us. He's one of us. That's the other thing. Yeah. He's one of us. What that us means sort of sometimes shifts depending on, uh, on, on where it's said. And Jim gets on this boat, which is... <laughs> Uh, captained by a loathsome j fat German captain and like a drunken first mate. Uh, and it's a pilgrim ship for, of pilgrims going to Mecca. Mm -hmm. And it hits something in the water. Uh, the hull is breached. And then it seems very clear that the sort of interior is going to collapse at any moment and everybody's going to die. It's just a matter of time, right? Mm -hmm. There's nothing anybody can do. And the all the other crewmen start to flee. And Jim doesn't feel like that's right. He shouldn't do that. There's a whole crew on board. He avoids it. Um, 
but then the ship doesn't sink. It just keeps sort of on for minute after minute after minute. And they know any, like the slightest breeze is going to knock that thing down. It's, it's going to fall when it, uh, it's, you know, when it, when it sinks, it's just going to sink like a stone and everybody's going to be dead. But he has to stand there watching them try and get one of the life rafts aboard. There aren't enough life rafts for everybody. Um, they're trying to get this boat aboard. They're like comically bad at it. He describes it as this burlesque where he's just watching sort of torturous because they're doing the thing that theoretically, if he had enough time, could save his life, but he, he loathes them. They have no interest in him. And then the last moment, um, one of the guys who was supposed to go on the boat like has like a stroke or a heart attack and dies. And then Jim looks down and jumps. And so escapes on the boat. And then the Patna somehow miraculously doesn't sink. Mm -hmm. And so, and this was based on a real incident. Mm -hmm. um, and so the crew has fled and the Patna just kind of keeps floating along until, uh, it's rescued. It's right? rescued by like a yeah. French ship. And there's this French guy who, uh, officer who goes on board for like the 30 hours that it takes to, to tow it 30 hours with no wine, uh, which was a nice touch. Yeah. Um, you know, this sort of honorable French, uh, officer. Um, and when the, when they get to shore, uh, you know, the fact that they behaved abominably sort of common knowledge, there has to be a trial. But all the people most responsible, the captain uh, and the others, they all leave. Like they, they escape. The, the captain <laughs> finds like some extra clothing. The only clothing that he's able to find are like orange and, and green striped pajamas. Um, and they disappear. And then Jim is the only one who actually like stays for the trial to stand up and take his punishment. Um, That's right. He has to face the music. Right. He has to face the music. A lot of the novel deals with the sort of the, the thing that haunts Marlo, who's telling the story, who's clearly obsessed by the story, is that this sort of idea of, like, you think you know who you are, right? And then there are things that can happen that can crush that, that are still, um, it's not that Jim was right to jump, right? Um, and it's not that the sort of seamen who convene were wrong to punish Jim, right? It seems to me that the perspective of the novel, or the perspective of Marlowe seems to be, there's a sort of code that you have to uphold. That code is a kind of creation of human beings. It's valuable, it's meaningful, but it is sort of in some ways false or not adequate to um, all of reality, which is always going to be more chaotic um, than any kind of system that you can put on top of it. And yet, nevertheless, you're going to need to live your life by some sort of uh, code or meaning of purpose. It strikes me that one of the persistent themes of the novel is this idea that a catastrophe, some, some kind of unexpected catastrophe is like a truth revealing thing. And in particular, what a catastrophe does is reveal your character yeah. to yourself and others. And in Jim's case, you know, he's, he's this romantic, he, he sort of reads these adventure stories about the sea as a kid. And he's like, oh, I'm going to go out there and prove my stuff. And then 
when it comes time um, to do that, he's not virile and manly and brave. Um, he's a coward who abandons, but he abandons basically a bunch of pilgrims seeking right. salvation. <laughs> um, and, and it's this, I, I mean, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a kind of crisis, but then he's also the one that is left with the weight of the responsibility of this failure. And I think that like somehow this has to be part of the, the broader theme of like, you know, what it takes really to get at the truth. Sometimes it takes a lot of external pressure and sometimes the truth is actually like pretty unpleasant. You think that you want to do this like manly stuff, but it turns out actually, <laughs> actually you don't. Or you think it's going to be this way because you read about it and it seems right. so awesome. Somehow it reminds me of Madame Bovary is sort of like, she thinks like she reads all these stories, you know, mm -hmm. as a young girl, like, I think that like romantic love is going to be this way. Right. And then it's, wow, it's really not. There's something about catastrophe here. That's really important to Conrad. Um, and, and part of it is that you never know when a catastrophe is coming. Right. And you never really know um, who you are until like you can have all kinds of you can you can have a fantastic imagination about what you would do in a catastrophe and what it would be like. But you don't actually know until the catastrophe hits. And then sometimes it's like really surprising. The novel doesn't seem to it doesn't want to it doesn't want to hang Jim by how he behaves in that moment. Right. Because. Um, you, you talked about this notion of like the catastrophe and then you sort of see, you know, what stuff we're made of, right? And yet Marlowe, the reason I think that Marlowe is terrified by Jim or not, is, is so drawn to him is because it, it, because he's one of us, right? Because he doesn't necessarily think this has revealed Jim's character so much as this is a sort of thing that any of us can fall into, right? We can, we can be Briarly, right? And have the perfect life and succeed in every test that is thrown before us. And yet you never get to master your fate. So there's a, there's a kind of later in the novel. So after this, the first part of the novel, Jim <clears throat> goes on uh, to this other, it's kind of floats through, um, different port towns, right? Uh, and then eventually Marlowe helps him find a job in this very sort of remote area where he is able to sort of achieve a degree of respect and he behaves bravely and, um, and almost sort of masters his fate. And there's this sort of continual refrain towards the latter part of the book about how, you know, Marlowe thought that he had indeed mastered his fate, right? That that um, that sort of fate was, you know, this sort of belief that maybe if you have the right character, the character could be destiny. If your character is good enough, you could actually sort of avert catastrophe or not necessarily even catastrophe, but avert shame. Right. Mm. And that is 
ultimately not up to Jim. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I'm, for maybe obvious reason, I'm always thinking of Aristotle. And uh, so so Aristotle in the Nicomachean Ethics in book eight, he's, it's in a discussion of friendship. And of course, all of the Nicomachean Ethics is about what it takes to be happy. Everybody wants to be happy. Like, that's the goal. He's like, well, you know, actually, you might have all that it takes and it's just all going to go to hell. And his example is King Priam. So he's like, you know, Prime was a was a was a great man, and he had everything that you could want. And look what happened to him. And that's just something that can happen. So that is sort of Aristotle signaling that there's a bit of luck here. I don't know how Aristotle feels about it, but in his discussion, there's no hint that like King Priam went down in shame. I mean, maybe he does think that. I mean, it's certainly a, a very plausible reading that that he would have died, you know, feeling deeply ashamed. This is like the stuff of Greek tragedy, right? It's not really up to us in the end and it might go to hell and, you know, that's just the way it is for the human. I don't know. Maybe Lord Jim, is it tragic? Is this a tragic novel? <laughs> um, no, it doesn't, it doesn't feel that way to me. It, <laughs> uh, though, the narrator insists that sort of Jim succeeded at the end, um, in a way. Jim is, it's an interesting character to base a novel around because I think Conrad's less interested in Jim at the end of the day than with sort of what Jim's story reveals, right? That What does Jim's story reveal? <laughs> uh, different things to everybody who encounters him. Right. So, you know, some people look at Jim uh, and say, you know, there's there's one guy's like, you got to see a thing as it is. And that means like rob, cheat, steal, like life is chaos. Um, there's, uh, you know, um, Marlowe, who is sort of, I think, captivated and terrified by Jim's story. There's Stein. Maybe we should talk about Stein for a little bit because he's sure. fascinating. Who's Stein? So Stein is this character in the middle of the novel. Uh, so Jim has been like sort of working as like a selling ships that come in. He goes and meets them and sort of shells, sells them goods on behalf of, of uh, whatever merchant is, is, is uh, hiring him at the time. And he'll stay in a town until people realize who he is and what his story was. And then he'll flee again. And so Marlowe goes to Stein who's been in the region for a long time, is this sort of like <sighs> traitor who has a kind of philosophical bent and is really into butterflies um, and has, you know, been in really dramatic and dangerous situations and has a, you know, sort of uh, different perspective on life and uh, asks him for help. And Marlowe explains Jim's story to Stein, and Stein has uh, sympathy for Jim. Uh, and and this probably, I think, probably the most famous part of the novel is um, where uh, he's talking to Stein and, <clears throat> about this, and, and Stein says, "Yeah, very funny. This terrible thing is: a man that is born falls into a dream like a man who falls into the sea. 
If he tries to climb out into the air, as an experienced people endeavor to do, he drowns. Victoire? No, I tell you. The way is to the destructive element submit yourself, and with the exertions of your hands and feet in the water, make the deep, deep sea keep you up. So if you ask me how to be, and yet it is true, it is true in the destructive element immerse. Um, as we were talking about the Tom Slay, the poet, a friend of mine, his mother, uh, when she taught uh, high school students, Lord Jim, at the beginning of the, uh, of the school year, she would say, you know, why am I, why are you taking this class? So, so you can read literature better? No, it's so you can know, as Joseph Conrad said, that in the destructive element, you must immerse. What does that really mean? What does that mean? Um, <laughs> I think it means that there must be a degree of embrace of that chaos and acceptance of it um, and an acceptance of your limitations, right? That if you, if you try and live, there's a certain degree of contempt that the novel shows for people who have lived their lives safely and who think that they can make strong moral judgments, that they can sit in judgment of people like Jim or Marlowe or Stein without ever having experienced these sorts of things. There's a wonderful line in the beginning. This is like chapter one. So I'll just read this because this made me like laugh out loud. Yeah. So this is just like introducing Jim. And at this point, it's kind of like just a a stereotypical omniscient narrator, yeah. right? Like, let me just tell you about this guy, Jim. So <clears throat> originally he came from a parsonage. Many commanders of fine merchant ships came from these abodes of piety and peace. Jim's father possessed such certain knowledge of the unknowable as made for the righteousness of people in cottages without disturbing the ease of mind of those whom an unerring providence enables to live in mansions. <laughs> Just right away, you're like, ooh, he's not really... Oh, yeah. Hey, <laughs> he's not messing around the, here. The, later in the book, he just straight up insults the reader. I mean, technically, it's like Marlowe insulting the people who are listening to yeah. the story. But one of the chapters ends with him like expressing hesitance about telling the rest of Jim's story. And then yeah. he explains the reason. He goes... Frankly, it is not my words that I mistrust, but your minds. I could be eloquent were I not afraid you fellows had starved your imaginations to feed your bodies. I do not mean to be offensive. It is respectable to have no illusions and safe and profitable and dull. Right. Yeah. I think this was like the fundamental appeal to me, like as a teenager with Conrad. Yeah. It was just like, this man has no patience for bullshit. Like, yeah. <laughs> He does have this kind of animosity towards um, the comfortable, the bourgeois, you know, safe bourgeois religion, right? Where Providence allows you to live in a mansion. Um, kind of comfortable ideology of almost any kind, honestly, right? Um, I mean, I love the, 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 there's a bit in the novel early on where he's talking about Jim. Um, uh, and, and one of the things he likes about them is he's like, um, you know, I liked his appearance. I knew his appearance. He came from the right place. He was one of us, right? And so you can tell, uh, you know, he stood for all the parents of his kind. For men and women, by no means clever or amusing, but whose very existence is based upon honest faith and upon instinct of courage. I don't mean military courage or civil courage or any special kind of courage. I just mean that inborn ability to look temptation straight in the face. A readiness unintellectual enough, goodness knows, but without pose. And then he says, 
um, an unthinking and blessed stiffness before the outward and inward terrors, before the might of nature, the seduction, the seductive corruption of men backed by a faith invulnerable to the strength of facts, to the contagion of example, to the solicitation of ideas. Hang ideas. They are tramps, vagabonds, knocking at the back door of your mind, each taking a little of your substance, each carrying away some crumb of that belief and a few simple notions you must cling to if you want to live decency, decently and would like to die easy. Yeah. So what's really going on there? I had, I had that passage marked and I was kind of like, yeah, I don't really know what's going on here. So you, you tell me. So I think that, um, throughout he has a sort of, he has a distrust of the kind of comfortable bourgeois religion that's represented by Jim's father, right? Who we can never return to, right? Because Jim has shamed himself. He has a respect for the the code, I guess, of yeah, the code of the sailors. Like he 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 respects it, but he understands it's sort of false, right? It's it's never it's a kind of broad thing that is never actually going to capture the irreducible human complexity of a human being in a specific embodied situation, right? Um, you know, there's a there's a uh, Robert Penn Warren essay in the Siwani Review on Nostromo, where Warren, uh, talking about Conrad, wrote, the last wisdom is for man to realize that though his values are illusions, the illusion is necessary, is infinitely precious, is the work of his human achievement, and is, in the end, his only truth, right? So, and that is, um, and so most people can sort of construct an ideological system that justifies them, right? or that sort of gives them a place in the world or lets them think they know who they are in the way that Briarly thinks that they know who they are. And then every once in a while, and catastrophe can do this, right? You come upon extremely specific pressurized situations where those ideological systems that you construct to help you navigate through the world, that you need to construct to help you navigate through the world, don't work. And what you're left with is human choices. Um, what would it mean for them to work? What would what are the success conditions? <laughs> the success. I mean, yeah, because yeah, I mean, like, if you say values are an illusion, but it's your only, but they're also your only truth. Right. It's like, well, that just is saying there is no truth because your only truth is an illusion. Um, and I mean, do you think that's well, so, really what, but that's what Conrad is getting at? But that's what he contrasts in that first bit with the sort of unintellectual sort of natural instincts that he, he admires in Jim. So towards the end of the novel, he gives you a kind of like um, false double of Jim in Brown. Hmm. Um, so Brown is a pirate. Yeah. Right? Yes, he is. Yes. So Brown has fled. Um, he's afraid of prison, uh, stolen a ship, and he ends up in Petswan, which is where Jim has kind of established himself, where he's uh, with the, you know, with the local girl, um, 
where he's got the friendship of like this one chief's son. Um, he has respect. And Brown uh, enters his place uh, and sort of gets into an armed standoff with the locals and with Jim. And Brown uh, kind of torments Jim by trying to argue his case in terms that Jim, that would sort of like be perfectly calibrated to appeal to Jim. Uh, so at one point he's trying to explain how he ended up in this spot. Uh, and Brown says, I've lived and so do you, though you talk as if you were one of those people that should have wings so as to go about without touching the dirty earth. Well, it is dirty. I haven't got any wings. I'm here because I was afraid once in my life, right? Which is, of course, exactly the same reason that Jim is. Mm -hmm. And yet, um, and Brown even has a sort of um, behaves on principle, right? Um, uh, sort of perverse, uh, evil principles. Um, so he has a pirate's code. Yeah, he has a pirate's code and a and a, and a, and a pride um, in his in his ethic. Um, and you're clearly meant to be revolted by brown and and you're meant to admire jim um and i think for conrad you know <laughs> words and i think this is related to the style of narration i think the reason that he's constantly sort of it's not just that Marlowe is telling us a story, but Marlowe will tell us a story about what Briarly told him or about what Brown told him or about what this French captain told him. Or at one point, there's a very interesting bit later in the novel where he narrates the end of Jim's life to one of the people who had listened to the story earlier. And it's clearly like a um, sort of racist Englishman believer in kind of the white man's burden who thinks that Jim by shacking up with a native um, has betrayed sort of civilization, right? Um, well, uh, because he falls in love yes. with a, she's like half Malay. Mm -hmm. What's her, she's like half Ooh, native. Right. Yeah. Um, and then you get that guy's words. And so he's constantly showing us these sort of different ways um, and different codes that the people are using to make sense of their reality. Um, and uh, and then instead, um, and, and, and except for Jim himself, who in some ways is just sort of simple. He wants to be the romantic hero that he always thought he was, and yet he always bears this sort of secret shame where he knows uh, in his heart that he can't be. Can we talk about the absurd? So you sent me this amazing little essay by a woman named Daphna Erdenost Vulcan. It's hard to describe this essay. I mean, I guess ostensibly it's an essay on Bakhtin, but more generally, and for our purposes, it's an essay on this concept of a, of a narrative self, mm -hmm. sort of like a philosophical account of the self. Her main question is, does narrative identity liberate or imprison human subjectivity? 
-hmm. Is individual agency enabled or suppressed by a narrative conception of subjectivity? To what extent can we author ourselves? You know, one of the questions here is a question of self-knowledge. So to what extent is any autobiography like a reliable thing? Can anyone really narrate their own lives on their own? Or do we kind of always necessarily have to rely on others to understand ourselves? And she or seems God, to... Right? So this is, I mean, this is like Augustine, you know, the, the, the notion where when you really start to inspect what, what memory and time are, right? Mm -hmm. That it becomes very clear that to be an intelligent thinking human soul in time is to be unfinished in some way, right? Mm -hmm. That, um, yeah, you're a wayfarer. Yeah. Um, and that that's not you're on the way. just a matter of, of sort of like a, a religious thought, right? But also one that, that sort of yields itself if you really deeply analyze, um, uh, the structure, the structure thing, you know, Rowan Williams has a nice uh, bit on Augustine where he talks about how like, you know, people who complain about the unity of Augustine's confessions, it's a very weird book. Right? It's Are, hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> someone once described Augustine's confessions this way and it was perfect. I think this is someone on Twitter, but it's like, oh, you know, for like 10 chapters, it's like, oh God, why am I so terrible? What's wrong with me? Like, oh. What about time? That's yep. really weird, right? <laughs> What's up with time? It's a hard, a hard book to figure out for yeah. sure. But it, but it's also obviously in some sense an an autobiography. Maybe it's the first autobiography, depending on who you ask. But um, the, 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 this is this is the bit from from uh, Williams. Those who have found the unity of the whole work of Lucif have missed the fact that he is not recording an edifying and coherent life, but performing two different tasks. As he says in book 10, he's exposing his continuing confusions and irresolutions irre as an encouragement to others. You don't have to have made a good story for life in order to be a faithful Christian. And he is praying. Purely formally, the whole of the confessions is a prayer to work out who I am. I need to be speaking to and listening to God. Yeah. And in the um, Daphne Erdnast Bolkin essay, Bakhtin is looking at this and sort of the authorial consciousness that 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 sort of very uh, omniscient um uh, uh confident authorial presence um uh sort of, of which i was speaking before that uh, she has a word for it the transgredient the hero of the work is just kind of contained in the authorial vision right mm -hmm. um and then what bakhtin was looking at Dostoevsky and um, Dostoevsky has these characters who who sort of speak for themselves right mm -hmm. and seem to be speaking against the author in fact um, and that um, you know that sort of uh, ability of, of Dostoevsky to have this sort of um, authority that he sees in a certain way, right? Where he's not trying to put this sort of uniform construction that will contain his characters and their ideologies within one overarching uh, sort of framework 
that will kind of comfortably interpret everything for the reader. That uh, ultimately Bakhtin decided was sort of Dostoevsky's sort of Copernican revolution in narrative. And that move is, is similar to what Conrad does when he pivots to having Marlowe tell the story and then tell the story of other people telling the story where you don't necessarily have a last word, but rather everything is put into dialogue with everything else. Right. Well, so, sort of what I took away, one of the things I took away from the essay, and just correct me if I'm wrong, is that Bakhtin has this vision of narrative identity as being intersubjective. Like yes. it's so, so there's a, there's a conceptual or a logical priority given to the intersubjective over the subjective. Yes. So, so that like your subjectivity is constructed through intersubjective exchange or transaction or dialogue. Yep. Is that right? Yeah. I hadn't thought about it as applied to literature. Right. I was reading Lord Jim and I'm not in the best frame of mind and I'm like annoyed. I'm like, ah, it's sort of like the first time I read um, the brothers Karamazov mm -hmm. and, and, you know, I'm like, oh, it's like an important book, but like, why is it so boring? <laughs> and like, why, why does everybody have like five names? Just have a damn name. Just stick to your name. I'm confused. <laughs> and so I do think it's a novel that, you know, is very demanding. It requires a lot of patience. Like you really got to pay attention, which I mean, obviously, if you're a careful reader of fiction, you got to pay attention. If that's the point, right? I mean, that's that's important. That's deep. If the point is just that, look, in order to understand like who this guy is and what actually happened and what we're supposed to think about it, you actually have to have a bunch of different perspectives. But I mean, but look, is that the point? She doesn't take a position, certainly not about this novel. I mean, no. it's just all sort of like... Yeah. At, a, at a very general philosophical abstract level, but just specifically when applied to Lord Jim, I mean, is that what's going on? And, and this novel is, is the eye that, that, sorry, the essay is The Eye That Tells Itself by Daphna Erdenas Vulcan. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that is like one of the things that, it's not just that you sort of get to the truth through differing perspectives in that way, but that sort of, um, <laughs> that's a large part of what makes up human beings, right? Habit, habit, necessity. Do you see the eyes of others is something that the, the French officer who behaves honorably um, tells him that that's, um, and then, you know, the sort of uh, nadir for Jim is not actually the trial necessarily so much as when he's on the boat after having jumped and it's just him and these other um, sort of terrible seamen, um, mm -hmm. alone, uh, he says, trust a boat on the high seas to bring out the irrational that lurks at the bottom of every thought, sentiment, sensation, emotion, right? I think part of what is terrible for Marlowe, um, about this story is that it, it, it suggests to him that what Jim is or what Jim's life, you know, what to make of Jim's life is not entirely up to Jim, right? I mean, sometimes you hear like these like platitudes like, oh, you know, you, you write your own story. And I'm like, no, you don't. Right. You don't. I mean, you don't. 
Um, you absolutely do not. That's not to deny your your beautiful, wonderful freedom. You are free, but you're free within like a lot of stuff that wasn't up to you, including your nature. Like you didn't choose to be human, which actually is incredibly confining and weird, and in some ways kind of terrible. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful, terrible. But like, you know, if we're up to me, I'd be like, Psh, I want to be an angel. Yeah. <laughs> really, you know, like the human, geez. It's not totally up to you. I, I really like the way she put it at one point, sort of like in a more, she says, we are, to put it briefly, authored, configured by an internalized other in much the same way as a hero is authored by the writer of fictional narratives. That being a way of describing like Bakhtin's insight. And I like that. I think there's something deep and important there. Yeah. One of the things that comes out in the essay is this, you know, the problem of self-knowledge in terms of my subjective first-person experience, right? I'm thinking of myself as subject, but I can also sometimes see myself as an object. And it's a bit uncanny, actually, whenever I kind of objectify myself. So like Walker Percy talks about this a lot. It's a, it's a theme in his fiction, but he talks about it in his more philosophical essays, right? Where he's like this uncanny experience of seeing yourself as an object when you like actually see yourself as other people see you. And he's like, it's really actually like pretty horrible and horrifying. And um, you're like, oh, do I, do I really sound that way? Did I really look that way? It's this kind of like a negotiation, right? Between subject and object right. and like trying to get these two perspectives to come together. And this is my way of like getting back around to the idea of the absurd. Right. So like one of the things that you wrote to me in an email was that you, you think that Conrad's like conception of the absurd is close to that of, well, closer to that of Thomas Nagel's yeah. rather than Camus. Nagel's conception of the absurd, right, is, is, is precisely about the gap between yeah. the subjective and the objectives. So like the absurd is basically this. Subjectively speaking, it seems like what happens to me is like super important, right? Right? Because it's me. We care. It seems like it really matters. Like I really care. Mm -hmm. But then from an objective perspective, it's so obviously meaningless, right? I mean, you're just like a peon, a grain of sand on the beach, a drop of water in the vast ocean. Like you know, it doesn't matter. So there's like this huge gap. And that's the sense in which your life is absurd. There's a bit from his essay, which is great. Each of us lives his own life, lives with himself 24 hours a day. What else is he supposed to do? Live someone else's life? Yet humans have the spe special capacity to step back and survey themselves and the lives to which they are committed with that detached amazement, which comes from watching an ant struggle up a heap of sand. Without developing yeah. the illusion that they are able to escape from their highly specific and idiosyncratic position, they can view it subspecie aeternitis, uh, <clears throat> and the view is at once sobering and comical. And that, to me, is why you know, you know, we talked a little bit about Camus, and I love Camus. Nagel, in this very sort of, um, you can sort of see him having a little twinkle in the eye, just like puncturing Camus' bubble. Um, you know, sort of, and he argues that for Camus, the problem is that the world is, um, you know, sort of is absurd, right? That the world yeah. does not fit itself to human desires. Uh, there's That's a right. great passage in the plague about how um, it's the humanists who die first in a plague mm -hmm. um, because mm -hmm. a plague is not something, you know, within the sort of human frame of mind, uh, humanist frame of mind. Uh, and so they, 
they don't take the sufficient precautions because it doesn't work inside their worldview. Um, and uh, so Camus, on, not on uniformly good, good grounds, rejects suicide. The other solutions he regards as escapist. What he recommends is defiance or scorn. We can salvage our dignity, he appears to believe, by shaking a fist at the world, which is deaf to our pleas and continuing to live in spite of it. This will not make our lives unabsurd, but it will lend them a certain nobility. And then mm -hmm. Nagel goes, this seems to me romantic and slightly self-pitying. <laughs> our absurdity warrants neither that much distress, distress nor that much defiance. Uh, goes, I would it's argue the rebel. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you just have... So yeah, so for, for Camus, the gap is between the way you are constructed mm -hmm. as a human being. So you're a rational thing. Yeah. You want things to make sense. And you're confronted with a world that is simply unintelligible. Right. Right? I mean, who is, who is Camus' hero? It's Sisyphus. Right. Right? I mean, Sisyphus is engaged in this eternal, meaningless, completely right. meaningless activity, but he's, you know, what's the famous line? We must imagine Sisyphus happy. Right. Like, and of course, Sisyphus was this um, guy who was um, punished by the gods to roll a rock, a, a really big rock, <laughs> up a really big hill. And then once he gets to the top, it's just going to go back down and he just has to do it over right. and over again for eternity. Um, that seems really unattractive to a human being. Why? Because humans want to engage in activities that are meaningful, that seem like they have a point or a purpose. And this is like the most purposeless, unfulfilling. There's no consummating moment yeah. in this activity. There's no telos that's ever reached. You're just doing this over and over again. You know, it's like raking the leaves. They're just going to come back. It's terrible. So that's the gap. It's yeah. a different gap. Even if the world made sense, it's still are still you know, there would be that sense of absurdity right you might actually have like from your perspective a totally meaningful life like maybe you i don't know you ended apartheid or something it seems like you're important but you didn't because like objectively speaking who cares right. the negalian picture is less serious i mean you know camus is sort of it's, sometimes comically serious yeah. it's like really super serious <laughs> it's sobering and comical at the same time and and like whereas for Camus it's like just kind of funny. Conrad <laughs> is actually really funny, right? And really yeah. funny in the dark points. I mean the 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 episode of the of the Patna is utterly ridiculous, right? Um, right. The characters are ridiculous. Um, <laughs> the the um, you know the the drunken um, you know first mate who. Uh, you know, the doctor examines him. And he's like, a tremendous, one of the most incredible specimens I've ever seen. You know, like purely from a medical standpoint, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> like, right. um, you know, the, the, the captain, his striped pajamas and, you know, the description of the, of them trying to get off the boat is, you know, it's like a, a three stooges routine. Right? right. And it's also the great tragedy of, of Jim's life. And, utterly harrowing to Marlowe. I mean, does Conrad think that the human condition is absurd and the best thing we can do is laugh it, laugh it off? I don't I mean you definitely you don't you don't get that sense like no. say at the end of Heart of Darkness. No 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 he doesn't he doesn't think just because it's comical doesn't mean you laugh it off, right? Like you still need to struggle, right? You need to immerse yourself in the destructive element. You need to go out there. You need to challenge yourself. You need to um 
immerse yourself in the destructive element while never once believing that you can actually master it, right? That sort of, if you think like Briarly, you've mastered your fate, you're living in, in delusion. Um, and yet also, you know, thinking that it's important, not succumbing to the sort of the, the Browns of the world or Chesters who think that um, the essential absurdity or of the world or the kind of the ways that sociological conditions can can propel us to dishonorable action or somehow justify you know justify yourself um you know you need to struggle you need to try and behave honorably you need to um and yet you should be attuned to the comedy of it I think, and I think understanding the comedy of it and having us enough detachment um, that you can appreciate it will help you move forward. What does it mean to move forward? What does it mean to like, let me just ask you this. What does it mean for Conrad to like come to self-knowledge? Because like, you know, I can say pretty confidently for someone like Augustine to come to self-knowledge right. is to see that you're a sinner, to see that you need God's grace, mm -hmm. to see that everything in this life is just a, a, a foretaste of, of something much better, blah, 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 blah. Right. Um, you're a needy, dependent thing, but like ultimately your perfection consists in love of God. What is, what what is, is that it? discussion with Monica, right? Yeah. I mean, what does it really mean for Conrad? Like what, what are you going to come to see if you come into self-knowledge as a human being? It's not that you're a wayfarer or a pilgrim on his way to salvation. I think that would be like too comfortable for him. It would be. It's yeah. It's, it's, it's a happy ending in a way. Yeah. So there's a bit where he, he argues that, um, sort of self, there's like, we always evade self. I mean, he's continually arguing that we evade self-knowledge, right? We absolutely evade yeah. self-knowledge. Uh, and there's a wonderful bit where he says, um, uh, talking about Jim's story, it had the power to drive me out of my conception of existence, out of that shelter each of us makes for himself to creep under in moments of danger as a tortoise withdraws within its shell. Uh, for a moment. Oh yeah, that's a, that's a great passage. Yeah. That's like, that's maybe my favorite yeah. one. For a moment, I had a view of a world that seemed to wear a vast and dismal aspect of disorder, while in truth, thanks to our unwearied efforts, it is as sunny an arrangement of small conveniences as the mind of man can conceive. But still, it was only a moment. I went back into my shell directly. One must, don't you know? Though I seemed to have lost all my words in the chaos of dark thoughts I had contemplated for a second or two beyond the pale, these came back too very soon. For words also belong to the sheltering conception of light and order, which is our refuge. Conrad has, um, you know, you know, we're never at rest until we find rest in God. Um, I think the most that you can get in Conrad is you sort of live your life according to that conception that you know is sort of false or insufficient in some way. You you try and hold fast towards those principles that guide you a little closer to truth or beauty or um, whatever it is. It's, you know, cause he's not a nihilist. He believes that the choices that these people make matter, right? Um, 
but he thinks that it is ultimately too mysterious, too strange, um, and ultimately too frightening for us to really hold on to it for any for any length of time. Um, and in that passage, he suggests that it's you know ultimately beyond language. Well, I think Conrad has a really clear sense of good and evil. Yeah. I think that he has a sense of the profound extent to which human beings can be evil. I think he also has a sense of the transcendent, mm -hmm. even though it's not, it's not God, right? Um, we had approached near to absolute truth, which, like beauty itself, floats elusive, obscure, half-submerged in the silent, still waters of mystery. Yeah, so, right. So their transcendent tracks the old notion of the transcendentals, yeah. right? Truth, beauty, goodness. And things that transcend our subjective perspective, things that we strive imperfectly to get, things that are hard for us to get, things that we're meant in some sense to attain by our nature, things that are real, right? They're not illusions. Right. <laughs> Whereas Heart of Darkness is about how hard it is to hold on to the good. Lord Jim strikes me as more about how hard it is to to get at the truth, right? I mean, it, it's, it's obscure to us. It's shrouded. It's yeah. difficult. Our best efforts sometimes fail. It's confusing. Like, we don't really know. And somehow I was thinking, like, all of that was, like, baked into, like, the weird, complicated narrative structure. And, and also kind of the weird ending. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it has kind of a weird ending. But, you know, it's, it's also there in Heart of Darkness. I mean, there's there's a lot of stuff about truth in that in that book too. I mean, because you know, the end of the story is is like a lie. Yeah, it ends with a lie. His last word right? were your name. Yeah, right. which is crazy. Yeah, the thing that really attracts me to Conrad, I think, his sense of like the limits of right. human beings. Right. Right. I mean, he's like so aware of how limited we are. Um. And, and, and yet, like, we have to, we have to strive for something that, like, we're not really set up to get. But, like, you gotta, you gotta try. Exactly. Yeah. And you sort of create systems for understanding the world, right? As you move through, as you move through it, that are necessary, but nevertheless, don't actually sort of exhaust the, the, the mystery at the heart of existence. And when we try to grapple with another man's intimate need that we perceive how incomprehensible wavering and mystery are the beings that share with us the sight of the stars and the warmth of the sun. It is as if loneliness were a hard and absolute condition of existence. The envelope of flesh and blood on which our eyes are fixed melts before the outstretched hand, and there remains only the capricious, inconsolable, and elusive spirit that no eye can follow, no hand can grasp. Yeah. It's nice. It is nice. So let me ask you... Uh, we're going to have to like end this soon because yep. uh, we've been talking a little while. So what do you think? So it seems like um, we're all kind of in this for the long haul. Um, it's a little terrifying, actually, to think about how long I'm going to be stuck in my house. <laughs> um, I can't, I, can't I, I seriously, I can't think about it too much. 
I basically, the way that I'm coping is that I take my life in very discreet, small chunks, two days at a time. That's, that's the way about, to do it. That's as best as I can do. What do you recommend for quarantine reading? Besides, obviously, Laura Jim. Well, there's the Decameron. <laughs> Why um, should we read that? Why is that a good play reading? Well, it's set during a play. That's Boccaccio. Yeah. In case people don't like um, and who doesn't like body tales during a play? Yeah. The Magic Mountain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it's almost fun. Give us like a wild card one. Yeah. An unexpected one. I'll give one. I think people should read Walker Percy's Love in the Ruins. It's crazy yeah. and it's really long and it's complicated. And it's 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 a little bit apocalyptic. Lawrence Joseph, um, who is a wonderful poet, just came out with a book of poem, selected poems, A Certain Clarity. And um, I think poetry, especially if you are really, really busy, <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. uh, it's, it's good to pick up a book of poems because you can always read a poem here and there. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I agree with that. That's very sound advice. Yeah. Get off Twitter and read poetry. I need to take my own advice. Frank Bedard, actually, if you like, um, if you like Conrad, um, I would, he's an amazing poet and, and actually he has a poem where he talks about Augustine. Um, I think it's either Golden State or Confession. I forget which one. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, where you have somebody who has, in a way like Conrad, I think a sense is attuned to something that you often see in a lot of religious writers, which is a sense of those limitations, a sense of those gaps, a sense of of, of transcendence and also the sort of um, uh, failures of human beings, a sense of our physical nature and, and, and the constraints of that, the constraints of society. There's um, just a... Uh, really wonderful wonderful poet um i would recommend frank bedart and uh lawrence joseph awesome well this was fun this was great thank you so much yeah I, uh, no thank you it is a thrill i'm a huge fan of your podcast thank you so much for oh likewise likewise